Shema Yisrael. Welcome to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries with Aaron Budgen. Aaron discovered Jesus is his Messiah while preparing to be a rabbi. He now teaches for several organizations and is the teaching pastor for Living God Ministries. Strongly distinguishing between the Old and New Covenants, Aaron presents the scriptures from a Judaic and historical frame of reference. Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. I'm presenting a series of programs on the subject of spiritual warfare. This program is a continuation in this series, but this program is a little unique. In this program, I'm going to address some questions. I have a list of questions that I acquired from the people who are on my email list. I sent out an email before I was reproducing this series asking people to provide me with some questions that they would like me to address. I did receive a lot of questions. I'm not going to be able to respond to all of them. So what I have done is I have picked a few questions that I believe are very common questions, the kinds of questions that are asked often when it comes to this subject. So the first question I'm going to address is, can Satan read our minds? If not, please give scripture to back it up. Now, when they refer to Satan, this can also be other demons. There are many demons besides Satan. But what I would like to point out is that in this question, the person is asking me to provide scriptures to back up the idea that Satan cannot read our minds. Sometimes questions can be like this. They can seem a little awkward to suggest that if I disagree with something that somebody believes, then I better back it up with some scriptures in order to support that. Well, you know, I personally don't know of any scriptures that would say that Satan cannot read our minds. I can also not think of any scriptures that would suggest that he can read our minds. Now, I do recognize that there are many scriptures that might give us some hints to that effect that we could perhaps look at and extrapolate some ideas concerning that, that maybe he can, maybe he can't. I can do that, but I honestly do not believe that this is an important question. I mean, it is important to the extent that it is a common one. It is a common kind of question. But because we don't have specific scriptures that give us a specific answer concerning this question, I'm going to say that it is not necessarily as important as we probably would like it to be. And so for myself, I don't really feel that concerned about this kind of a question as to whether or not someone can read my mind. In addition to that, there's another question related to this where someone asked, when I talk out loud to the Lord, can demons listen in on the conversation? Well, I suspect that maybe they can, if they're within a certain degree of proximity. I suppose that that could be the case. But again, I don't really see the relevance. There's two reasons why I would say that. The first reason that I would say that is that I don't think that the demons can have a real appreciation for the communication that we do have with the Lord when we speak with him in our minds, or when we are just simply pondering or thinking about things, or when we speak to him out loud, if we have achieved a reasonable degree of maturity in the faith, I really don't think that the demons will be able to really comprehend and appreciate the communication that we are having with the Lord. I don't think that it would be 
meaningful to them, or that they would be able to use it to their advantage in some way. Now, I can understand that some people might feel a little concerned in expressing some of their personal weaknesses. By disclosing that, the demons might hear about these personal weaknesses and try to capitalize on these weaknesses in some way. But to be honest with you, I really don't think that that's necessary. I personally believe that they will quite likely be able to figure that out in one way or another, whether we expose ourselves in prayer that they listen in on, or we expose ourselves by thinking things that they might be able to discern. I personally don't think that that's necessary. I think that they can provoke certain thoughts. They can provoke certain ideas. These can be thrown at us in a way that we would describe the fiery darts that are thrown at us in the midst of the conflict that we are experiencing on a daily basis. And then they can simply observe our responses, observe our reactions to those provocations, and they can come to conclusions with regards to where our weaknesses might be. I really believe that there are many ways that this can be accomplished outside of us openly confessing things. Regardless of that, I will still hold the same position that I don't think that it really is that relevant. I really don't. I really believe that as long as we stay focused on our relationship with our God, being honest and truthful with Him, staying focused on what He has given to us in Christ Jesus and live in accordance with the inheritance that we have received, that we should achieve a degree of maturity to the extent that when the devil might use these things against us, we will be able to respond in a mature way. That, to me, is what is more important than being concerned about exposing things. But how will you respond when you are confronted to circumstances related to the truth of whatever struggles that you might be having or concerns relative to open communication with the Lord? So when it comes to questions such as these, I will take the position that because we don't have much of any information concerning this at all in the scriptures, I will say that in this case, it is not something that we should concern ourselves with to the extent that we would deviate in any way concerning our growth and our relationship with our God. Okay, the next question that I have here is, where is the line between the remnants of my sinful nature and the meddling of Satan and his minions in my life? Where is the line between the two? Well, with regards to remnants of the sinful nature, I'm not so confident that those remnants are very far away from what might still be legitimate struggles in our life, or that might become struggles very soon, just because of who we are in general. So when it comes to trying to distinguish between the demons having influence over us, or previous issues that we might have had before, or even new issues that we might develop as we get older, I don't think that we should be too concerned about where this line is, because the response will still be the same. We should still respond, acknowledging the truth of our condition, acknowledging the truth of his provision, and proceed in our daily life. What I sense from this question is that a person might be considering, where should we place blame? I mean, at what point do we blame ourselves, or do we blame the minions, the devils, minions, and the demons that might be in our life? At what point, under what circumstances, do we properly place blame? On whose fault is it 
that we're struggling in some way or that there may be someone who's meddling with us in some way. I personally do not think that this is the proper approach, that we should be concerning ourselves with who might be doing this, ourselves or the demons. Instead, stay focused on acknowledging the truth of who you are, the truth of the struggles that you might personally have, and assume proper responsibility for yourself. In the midst of that, you should then be able to acknowledge the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, acknowledge the will of God, the inheritance you have in Christ, and proceed. Get on with your life. Live your life making the assumption that this is simply your personal struggle and that you're not necessarily being influenced by some outside spirit. Because in general, we don't need outside spirits. We don't need demons in our lives in general to give us a struggle now and then. We can do this ourselves. We don't really need a lot of extra help. The next question comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 19, where it says, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. The question that was asked has to do with the fact that people are assuming that this is a promise that is relevant to everyone. I don't believe that. From what I can tell, this was a specific declaration that the Lord Jesus made to these specific disciples to give them confidence and to tell them that the Lord was with them. Now, this does not mean that the Lord will not do this for us today. I'm not intending to say that. I believe that he can, and he probably does. But I will not say that he is obligated to, that this is some declaration that is a promise for everyone. That I do not see. Instead, what I prefer is the next verse, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. To me, that would be the proper focus. Do not rejoice in the ability or the power that you might have to engage the spirits and the power to overcome them, but instead be thankful that the Lord has provided you with some evidence of some kind in order to demonstrate to you that he is with you, therefore you do have a place in the kingdom of heaven. That to me has more relevance. And of course, it is not necessary to experience these kinds of events, these kinds of phenomenons, in order to recognize that you do have a place in the kingdom of heaven. That to me is the most important thing to consider when it comes to a question that is similar to this. All right, the next question is, Aaron, you said Satan wanted to be like God, but Satan cannot create. He can only deceive and cause destruction. The question is this, when did Satan become the evil one that only wants to destroy? Well, you know, I take issue with this. I mean, I have produced a number of programs in this series where I did address this question, but I decided to mention this question just in order to give you a general summary concerning the things that I have said in the previous programs. First of all, it's not me who said that Satan wanted to be like God. He's the one who said that. He said that, in effect, to Eve when he spoke with her in the garden, that if you only know what is good and evil, you can be like God. I believe that the testimony of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 14 reveals the attitude of the devil, even though his name is 
not really mentioned there in the original language, which I believe is in compliance with the law, which I explained in previous programs, that I believe that this is a good indication that Isaiah knew exactly who he was talking about and conveyed to us enough information to suggest that this was the devil who was proclaiming that he wanted to be like the Most High. So it's not just because I said this. I I really do have some passages in the scriptures that I refer to that gives me some evidence that this is the case. But Satan cannot create. You know, from his point of view, I believe he is involved in an act of creation because he did make something new. For example, when he spoke to Eve about becoming something greater than what she was before, it's my opinion that he probably believed that that the devil probably believed that there was something greater that could be achieved through this independence from God, that there was no real necessity for the living God to dwell within his creation. I don't think that the devil could have related to the importance of that, to the necessity of that. And so on that basis, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he may not necessarily have intended to be destructive. Now, I mentioned in a previous program that I don't think that he cares that he is destructive either. But through this new revelation that he has provided, this declaration that God is keeping secrets from us, I believe that from his point of view, he was creating something new. And I will suggest, as I suggested in previous programs, that it was this event, it was the temptation of humanity that God created, Adam and Eve, in the garden, that gave the devil the inspiration to rebel in the way that he did. Okay, the next question is, I have often wondered if Satan is omnipresent or only works in influential people like Paul and sends his demons to the rest of us folks. Well, first of all, when it comes to being omnipresent, I can say from the testimony that I received from a satanic priest who I led to the Lord, He told me that the demons have an extensive communications network of some kind. He gave me some details, things that I don't think are worth mentioning in a program like this, but there was the indication, I received the indication, and I think that there could be some legitimacy to this, that they do have the ability to communicate with each other in such a way that they can give the illusion that they are omnipresent. And through their intelligence-gathering exercises, they might give the appearance that they are collectively omniscient in some way also. But I don't think that there is any real comparison between what they have been able to accomplish and perhaps publicize. I don't think that there's any comparison between what they have accomplished and who the Lord our God really is and what he accomplishes. So I will answer this question by saying no, but that they can give the appearance that they are omnipresent or omniscient. Okay, what is the role of prayer in spiritual warfare? Well, this is a very good question and can be answered in a number of ways. Many ways that I probably would never say, and it doesn't mean that I disagree with those ways. This is the way that I perceive that kind of a question. I would restate it. I would restate it in this way. What is the role of talking to God in spiritual warfare? That, to me, would be a better representation because prayer, to me, is nothing more than talking to God, talking with Him, listening to what He might have to say. What is the role of communicating with our God 
when it comes to the subject of spiritual warfare. Well, to me, there is no special, unique communication required when we are confronted with a circumstance that might fit in this category of spiritual warfare. I don't think that there's anything unique about the issues related to spiritual warfare in comparison with any other issues that we experience in our daily life. I understand that there might be an increase in drama in some way, but honestly, I really don't think that this is something that we should be concerned about. But I wanted to mention the question in order to say that, that it really is nothing more than talking with God. Do not feel as if there has to be something unique about this experience of prayer when it comes to this. Okay, James says to resist. Resist the devil and he will flee. But he gives more grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The question is, how? How do we resist the devil? Well, you know, James puts this in a very interesting location in his letter and writes it in a way that it could very well be considered to be a little misplaced. I mean, he seems to insert this in an unusual way, so I'm not really sure what he was intending to say. I really don't have confidence that I can speak to what James was intending to say, and I really don't know what he was intending to say about how you might actually accomplish that. I'm not sure what he was intending to communicate here. One thing that I do know concerning resisting the devil, though, that I can mention from my own personal experiences, is to just simply stop saying no to sin and instead say yes to Jesus. That, to me, is an act of resistance. To say no to sin also means saying no to living a life under the law, because the law does stir up sin. That is the way that I personally view resisting the devil, because it is Through our pursuit of sin, it is through our attempted obedience to the law, a life of holiness. It's through these things that we empower him in such a way that we are no longer resisting him. The law is a weapon that the devil uses against us. When we try to appropriate the law for our lives personally as believers in the Lord Jesus according to the New Covenant, We are opening ourselves up in a way that we are not going to be able to resist what the devil or his demons are going to be able to do with our attempt to try to live a life that we certainly are not going to be able to live. We provide him with lots of opportunities to the extent where we will not be able to resist him very easily, and it should not be very long before we start feeling separated from our God in our own mind, as it is written, And in addition to that, that we might feel separated from the acceptance and the love of God, which will then inspire us to pursue more sin, and then it's all downhill from there. And so while I'm not sure what James was intending to say, I can say what I would say if those were the words that I was choosing to use in order to describe resisting the devil. Okay, the next question is, do you believe there are as many demon-possessed people running around today as there seemed to be during the time of Jesus and even the early church? If so, do we as believers need to spend our time trying to exercise them like Jesus and the apostles did? Do you believe many of the leaders of the world or simply unbelievers in high places are demon-possessed? 
Okay, I will say that I'm not very confident that there are as many demon-possessed people. The reason why I say that is because I believe that the demons will expose themselves too easily if they overcome the consciousness of an individual. It's my opinion that they can be more destructive if they do not overcome the consciousness of an individual. Instead, they simply influence that person to the extent where their behavior and their decisions are just as adequate. It is my belief that that is how they are primarily operating today, how they are participating in our lives. And the reason why I believe that is because after the time of the Lord Jesus, he, through the Holy Spirit, intervened in a new way that, from what I can tell, he never did before, and that he would continue to do that. And so, because I believe the Lord will intervene more when it comes to cases of demonic possession, I believe that the demons have backed off a bit from that, because when the Holy Spirit intervenes, it gives greater credibility to the power and the reality of our God, that the devil may not necessarily want us to see, that he does have relevance, that he does have power, that he is as real as he says he is. And so I don't think that it is to their advantage to possess people like they did once before anymore. And for that reason, I don't think that we're going to see as many cases. However, if you do encounter a circumstance like that, then just proceed as the Lord leads you. Now, with regards to people in positions of power, they might very well have demons who are attached to them in some way, who influence them in some way. I have known many people who are very influential, who do hold positions of great power in the world. Most of the people who I encountered, I did not receive any discernment from the Lord that would suggest that these people were personally demonically possessed. Honestly, I don't think that there would be any necessity for that. The people were making decisions based on their own personal convictions. They were very sincere about their decisions. I believe that they were sincerely wrong and that their convictions were inappropriate. And so why would the devil need to send a demon over to them and stick around with them and inspire them on occasion? No need for that at all. The people are doing just fine without the demons. I personally have encountered a few who I would say, yeah, I think the Lord has given me discernment concerning the presence of demonic spirits, but not enough to say that to me it would be a significant issue. I do believe that people can be destructive and make decisions and do things that the devil will be able to esteem advantage from regardless of whether he participates with them directly or indirectly. It really wouldn't matter in most cases that I personally have encountered. And then a follow-up question, another question that is related to this, asks, it would seem that evil spirits are capable of influencing the thoughts and actions of people without actually possessing them. Are they actually able to put thoughts, ideas directly into our heads as opposed to using the thoughts, ideas of other people to influence us? Well, again, you know, it depends on how you look at it. I personally think that it is much worse for the demons to influence us rather than just simply overcome a person's consciousness. It's much worse in the sense that they are not going to be exposed as easily. They can have greater influence when people do not know that they are present, when people do not know that they are participating. It's my opinion that they can be more effective 
in most cases, when they do not overcome someone else's consciousness. The next question that I'd like to address comes from 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, where it says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. All right, now I personally believe that this verse with relevance to spiritual warfare has to do with, first of all, the works of the devil have been destroyed. Consider the first work of the devil, and that was the satanic lie that all you need to know is what is good and evil, and you can be like God. The Lord Jesus destroyed that work of the devil by making it clear that it was not possible for us to function on the basis of the law, on the basis of the knowledge of good and evil. He did that so that he might be able to provide us with forgiveness, forgiveness that we would be willing to receive when we finally realize and acknowledge that we've got no hope outside of his grace and mercy, so that he could then restore to us the Holy Spirit that had been lost in Adam, considering that there would be no sin that would cause the Holy Spirit to depart from us ever again. In this way, we are born again, and that is the final destruction of the work of the devil, which was the satanic lie that led to the death of humanity. He has destroyed that work by resurrecting those of us in humanity who are willing to receive the gospel and be born again as a child of God. So that's what I see in this verse, that we do not sin because no law is being held against us anymore. We certainly commit sin, but because of his forgiveness, it is as if we have not. So in verse 9, where he says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin. That's the point of view that I take when I read this in order to avoid what you would normally consider, which is that it's not possible to commit sin anymore, which obviously is not real. So the ultimate destruction really happens through salvation, and with the salvation that we now have, we can enter into his rest and be at peace in the midst of the spiritual war that we are in. You have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries. You can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net. That is, livinggodministries.net. Do help us develop new radio programs and continue broadcasting on this and other radio stations. Send your contributions to Living God Ministries, P.O. Box 38353, Colorado Springs, Colorado. 80937 or use the donation link on our website livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net